Well, we've just celebrated Easter, and some people think Christianity is a bloodthirsty religion. Byron Barlow sets the record straight here on Probe. Billions of Christians around the world celebrated the death and resurrection of Christ during Passion Week and Easter Sunday. The topic was everywhere, from sermons to a CNN docudrama titled Finding Jesus. You may have questions about all the talk of the blood of Christ and songs saying things like, Jesus' blood washed away my sins. Well, this bloody theme does raise understandable concerns that are shared by believers, seekers, and skeptics alike. In fact, more and more skeptics are posting on the Internet things like this book promotion. Christians are obsessed with blood. They sing about it, declare they are washed in it, and even drink it. In this book, you will discover the crazy background to this Christian obsession and the truth about the bloodthirsty God they claim to know and serve. Well, we'll discuss whether these charges are true and fair and explain the doctrine of blood atonement in coming segments. Again, even many Christians, including me, have wondered deeply about all the biblical imagery of shed blood, what some call the crimson thread of Scripture. I mean, the grotesqueness of the Old Testament animal sacrifice and the belief in Jesus' torturous slaying as the core of salvation. Radical stuff for modern ears. So what is blood atonement and why does it matter? In historic Orthodox Christian thought, God's Son is at the very center of history doing these things. Reconciling man to God, ransoming humans from slavery to sin and well-deserved death, and justly recompensing God for the horrific offense of rebellion and disobedience to Him. Thankfully, the gospel, or good news, is simple. The Bible claims Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so that He might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. The bottom line for all people is this. Out of Christ's death came the hope of eternal life, and His resurrection proved this. Our sin caused God's Son to suffer and die. By grace, through faith, we can benefit. Otherwise, we suffer eternally for staying with the cosmic rebellion that started in a perfect garden long ago. Yet this blood-centered good news is a scandal to both those who believe and those who deny it. In fact, the Greek root word scandalon is used for Christ himself. You see, Jews denied the Christ as the promised one, and Gentiles thought it was all nonsense. Nothing has changed for mankind. The choices are either do-it-yourself religion, being too smart for all that, or believing in this radical hope. This has been Probe with your host, Byron Barlow. To get a better grasp of the sacrifice of Christ, download Byron's transcript, The Scandal of Blood Atonement, at probe.org. Then join us next time here on Probe. You're all in a serious spiritual and moral pickle. Biblical Christianity declares that each person ever born is stuck under an irreversible syndrome. That's S-I-N-drome. And there's no human answer. History sadly records the habitual and continual effects of sin, oppression, addictions, self-promoting power plays, deceit, war, on and on. Now for a reality check. No moral order, either in a family, a company, military unit or society survives ambiguity or failure to enforce laws. Just a creator were to simply wink at sin or let people off scot-free, where would justice be? What kind of God would he be? God is holy, and he called himself the truth. There's no way God would be true to himself in the moral order he created, and yet fail to punish sin. Such impunity would mock justice. As one theologian puts it, pardon without atonement nullifies justice. 
A law without penalty is morally unserious, even dangerous. Okay, but penalties have levels of harshness. Why is death necessary? Scripture spells out clearly the decree that sinners must die. In God's original command, he stated, When you eat of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, you will surely die. In Ezekiel, the same formula appears slightly reworded. The soul who sins is the one who will die. Paul boiled it down this way. For the wages of sin is death. God's justice and holiness demanded death for sin. Blood must be shed. Detractors of the cross tend to underestimate sin and know nothing of its offense to a holy God. Everyone wants justice, for others, that is. Okay, so what does a just and holy God do with impure treasonous creatures he made to bear his image? God was in a quandary, if you will. Yet even in the garden, he was already hinting at a plan to reconcile this dilemma. God so loved the world that he sent down his son as a man to pay the death penalty. Thomas Oden writes, God's holiness made a penalty for sin necessary. Love was the divine motive. Holiness was the divine requirement. Romans 5.8 reads, God demonstrates his own love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And as Romans 8 teaches, this love was so great that God did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. We're exploring the scandal of biblical blood atonement. Isn't this crucifixion thing simply about a grouchy God acting all bloodthirsty? As some atheists, like popular author Richard Dawkins, say... Should good people find this repugnant? One unbelieving critic wrote, Unfortunately, much of Christian art consists of depicting the sufferings and agony of Jesus on the cross. This reflects the obsession of Christianity with the crucifixion, cross-sion with our sins, having been washed away by the blood of the Lamb, would be regarded as evidence of a serious mental illness. But when this is an obsession of millions of people, it becomes religious faith. Wow! Did you know that you, if you're a believer, are part of an insane global crowd? Well, this vividly illustrates the scandal of the cross, which is to them that are perishing foolishness, as the Apostle Paul described it. No, biblical sacrifice is not a blood fest, but the way to deal with a sad reality. Put it this way, if God said, nah, don't worry about rebelling against your creator, would that be a just and righteous God? Would a deed his laws mean anything? Yet we're unable to keep laws. So he steps in to pay that penalty with his lifeblood. This storyline is utterly unique in the long human history of religions. And the resurrection Christians celebrate shows its truth in actual time and on this dirty earth. Pagan myths of savior gods who rise from the dead have only a surface resemblance to the biblical resurrection. Such deities are more like impetuous and tyrannical people than the one and only Yahweh. The biblical God's love fostered the unthinkable set up a sacrificial system for a -a one-of-a-kind people, the Israelites, that served as a foretelling of his coup de grace, dying in man's place as the spotless sacrificial lamb. What a novel religious idea that only the true God could dream up. Theologian Thomas Oden says it this way, It was God who was both offering reconciliation and receiving the reconciled. God's merging of perfect holiness, just retributive punishment, An allowance of his own son's execution was actually a beautiful thing. Francis of Assisi wrote that love and faithfulness meet together at the cross. Righteousness and peace kiss each other. Faithfulness springs forth from the earth and righteousness looks down from heaven. 
Mel Gibson's The Passion of the Christ hit movie theaters in 2004 to mixed reviews. It earned its R rating for gory bloodshed and ironically became a cultural scandal itself. Seems that the bloody realism was too much for both softcore Christians and high-minded unbelievers. But this vividly poignant portrayal of Christ's blood-stained passion did raise a good question. When it came to saving mankind, why the shedding of blood? Could God not have found another way? Church father Athanasius believed that if there were a better way to preserve human free will and still reconcile rebellious man to a holy God, he would have used it. Apparently, Christ's suffering and death was the only solution. The Apostle Paul summarized Christ's entire earthly ministry this way. He humbled himself and became obedient unto death. At the cross, human hate did all the damage it could do to the only Son of God. God used the grim method of crucifixion, honed to a fine art by Roman pagans who saw human life as dispensable. But again, why is death demanded of God to atone for sin? Well, the grounding for such a claim appears early in the Bible, after the murder of Abel by his brother Cain. In Genesis 9, Yahweh declares, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed, for God made man in his own image. Apparently God put the price of a man's life as that of another's life. So in keeping, the highlight of Christ's death was its substitutionary sense. The Apostle Peter wrote, For Christ also died for sins, once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. Justice, fairness, and reality itself demanded a blood guilt payment for sin. Christ paid it. Substitutionary sacrifice was nothing new for the Jews. From the beginning of God's dealings with his people, agreements were blood covenants. What else could carry the weight of such momentous things? And as the book of Hebrews teaches, indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. So here's the scandal we spoke of. Christ's suffering, death, and resurrection conquered sin and neutered the fear of death. Only blood could clean sin. Only God's Son's blood could do it perfectly and forever. Theologian Thomas Oden summarized well our discussion of Christ's blood atonement. He wrote, Love was the divine motive, holiness the divine requirement. Romans 5.8 says, God demonstrates his own love for us in this, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Such claims trump the understandable disgust of doubters, but the red blood leads to pure whiteness. Chick-fil-A restaurant employees are trained to say, My pleasure, when serving customers. Imagine God saying that to believers regarding the cross of Christ. Paul explains in his letter to the Colossian church that it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness of deity to dwell in Him. Having made peace through the blood of His cross, He has now reconciled you in His fleshly body through death. God was glad to stand in as the essential scapegoat to restore us to right relations with Himself, to buy us back from slavery to sin, fear, and death, and to abolish sin and its effects. This doesn't sound like a bloodthirsty, tyrannical deity demanding a whipping boy or abusing his own child, as some acidly accuse. My pleasure brings in new dimensions of loving-kindness and servant-heartedness. But wait, there's more. Scripture lists lots of wonderful effects created by the blood of Christ. These include forgiveness, propitiation or satisfaction of God's righteous wrath, justification or being made right, reconciliation with God, cleansing, 
sanctification, freedom from sin, and the conquest of Satan. Yes, you could say that Christianity is blood-obsessed. As accused, even its hymns often focus on the benefits bought at the highest of prices, the life of the God-man himself. One famous hymn goes, For my pardon this I see, nothing but the blood of Jesus. For my cleansing this my plea, nothing but the blood of Jesus. Well, this beautiful blood obsession finds its highest hope in Revelation. The following is a prophecy about persecuted believers. These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. For the Lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and he will guide them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Maybe the revelations here are as crazy as skeptics say. The foolishness of God. We believe it's the most glorious story ever told.